You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Peter began his message by correcting what it is that they misunderstood about what it is that they had just seen. And so we're going to begin that way this morning. Last week, after we went through the text, I got more questions off of what I had said last week than I got off of what I said concerning the subject of tongues, which I wouldn't have expected. Uh, Some of you may have expected that, but I certainly didn't. I expected to be bombarded by questions on the subject of tongues and I didn't get any of that, but I did get a lot of questions last week. So let's begin by just sort of clarifying and bringing some correction to any misunderstanding. Several people asked me the same question last week, and when that happens, that's usually an indication that there are more than one person, or maybe everybody had the same kind of question in their mind, but nobody asked it except for two or three people. Um... Last week, we contrasted the philosophy of ministry that is prevalent in the modern evangelical church with the philosophy of ministry and what went on in Acts chapter 2. In our modern church, we have approached the Great Commission as if it were a marketing manifesto, and the mentality is that we need to repackage the gospel and change it and twist it and distort it ever so slightly as to deliver it to a consumer-based crowd so that we could draw pagans and unbelievers into the church and thus, quote-unquote, evangelize them. We need to pander to people's flesh in order to bring them in and then tell them that they need to crucify that flesh in salvation. That's the modern mentality. And so last week we looked at Acts chapter 2. The apostles didn't do any of that. They just preached the Word. They just stood in front of people and taught what God's Word was and had confidence that in the preaching of the Word, God had the power to save souls and that He would sovereignly do so if they just trusted Him to do it and were faithful in just proclaiming the Word. And that would lead some people to say then, well, are you saying, Jim, that all that a church should be involved in doing is a worship service and preaching the Word and that we should not have anything outside of that? One person asked, what about special music? Another person said, what about Sunday school? And what about Awana? How do those fit in with a word-centered ministry or a ministry that doesn't seek to pander to people's flesh in order to market the gospel to them? How do you fit in these different ministries? Women's ministries, book club, all the things that we have going. How do those fit in? Those are good questions. Let's take Sunday school, for instance. Sunday school is a, is a age-specific ministry to children in which we teach children the Word. And Sunday school really should be about teaching the doctrines of the faith and the Word of God to children and trusting that children have the ability to understand those things and to grasp some deep truths of the Scriptures. We, in our house, we have a conviction that we think our children are able to understand even the most complex doctrines of the Christian faith. Like, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity the fact that Christ was both God and man and that He came, God came in the person of His Son and took upon Himself human flesh. And we've taught our children that and we spend some of our time in the evenings describing that and illustrating that 
and teaching them that truth and showing them that from Scripture. That has been a priority of ours. I believe that children, even as young as five and six years old, have the ability to understand even complex subjects like the Trinity and like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and things like that. So we teach our children those things. And it led to a little misunderstanding. We were watching the news one evening and they showed a, um, a video clip, a, a, what do you call it, a trailer for the movie The Passion of the Christ. An advertisement for that. And we were sitting there and that kind of caught my children's eye because it mentioned the passion of the Christ. And so they were watching it and I let them watch it. I thought this would give me an opportunity to explain because they're not going to show too much stuff on a, on a movie trailer. So I let them watch it and the camera in one scene panned around to show Christ as he was hanging on the cross there, all scarred and beaten as he was. And, and then it panned away to another scene and the commercial got done playing. And Shepley turned around and he said to me, how did they find a cross big enough to put God on it? And so, yeah, now, obviously, I'm going to have to work on the humanity thing as well as the, the deity thing, but that illustrates that there was something of what we have been had been going through that had sat in his, minds, in his mind. That's what children should be being taught in Sunday school. We shouldn't be entertaining children. We don't bring children into Sunday school just to entertain them and avoid any difficult subject or any controversial subject or any Scripture that might offend. We should bring them in to teach them the doctrines of the faith and the Scriptures. What about Awana? Don't we somewhat entertain children at Awana? Well, sure we do. Do we have fun? Sure we have fun at Awana. Awana Fun Fair was a fantastic time. We had parents come in. We took an opportunity at 7.30 to present the gospel message while we had all of these parents there, many of whom were unsaved. And so we do have an enjoyable time. Games are fun. Being with your friends are fun. We banter with the kids. That's fun. There's nothing wrong with making learning fun. The issue is, what are you learning? What is the place that God's Word has in the ministry that you're doing and how you're doing it? That's really the issue. In Awana, we believe that the Word is central. We ask those kids and try and motivate those kids to read the Scriptures and to memorize the Scriptures because we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we'll make it fun with them. There's not a problem in that. But we don't avoid saying certain things and doing certain things lest we offend and drive away kids. We have kids coming to our Awana ministry whose parents and grandparents honestly believe that men are not born sinners. I honestly believe that. That women are born sinners, we all know that. (laughs) No, I mean mankind. They honestly believe that mankind are born, is born innocent and in innocence. And that they're not born depraved, they're not born lost, and they're not born sinners. That's the parents and the grandparents of some of the kids that we have coming to Awana on Friday nights. Now, are we going to avoid any Scripture references that speak otherwise? Are we going to water down that message or not tell them otherwise or not present them with the truth just because we might not want to offend them and drive them away? No. If anything, it gives us a reason to be even more forceful with the truth so that we can win kids to the Lord. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being fun. There's nothing wrong with being humorous. There's nothing wrong with being engaging. I work all week long to try and make what is said here on Sunday mornings intellectually engaging for you and interesting. I could get up here and just read Scripture for 45 minutes, but I don't do that. I work to try and make it engaging. Not entertaining. There's a difference between entertaining and engaging. I work all week thinking, how can I engage these people But I'll tell you something, I don't worry one whit about if I might offend anybody. I don't spend one moment thinking about that. 
I do not spend one moment asking myself, how can I dumb this down so that they don't have to think too hard on Sunday morning? And I don't spend one moment asking myself, how can I cut some Scripture out of this and cut this subject out and this topic and say this in a way that won't offend? I don't worry about that. I do worry about being engaging. I do worry about communicating effectively. But I don't worry about the offense of it. That's the difference. The issue is not what do you do. The issue is what is the place that the Word of God has in what you do? And what is the place that Christ has in what you do? And what we're seeing in our modern churches is we're pushing Christ and His Word out the door in order to make room for pagans and their flesh. And they're coming into the church in droves. And we keep the Scriptures off to the side lest we offend anybody who comes in. That's the difference. Once you push Christ and His Word out the door, you have what no longer resembles a New Testament church. It doesn't resemble at all. See, we're not left in the dark as to what the New Testament church looked like. We're not left into the dark as to what their ministry was like or what they what their priorities were or how they did what they did. We're given that in the book of Acts. And I want you to look at that picture that we have in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 2. Have your Bibles ready there. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through verse through the end of the chapter, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 through verse 47, we get a picture of what the early church was like. What was their life like? What was their ministry like? What were their priorities like? What was it that characterized these early believers? And that becomes for us sort of a standard, a, a ruler, if you will, by which you and I can compare ourselves and by which we can compare churches that we go into and even our own local fellowship. Verse 42 sort of is a summary verse. We're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at the activities of the early church. And then second, the attractiveness of the early church. The activities of the early church are sort of summed up in verse 2. And I want to, I want you to notice a structural detail in the passage before we get into the particulars. Read verse 42 with me. They were continually devoting themselves. And then Luke lists four things. The apostles teaching or the apostles doctrine. Number two, to fellowship. Number three, to the breaking of bread. And number four, to prayer. Those four things are what the early church were devoting themselves. That's a summary statement. Then Luke goes on in verses 43 through 46, actually the first part of verse 47, to describe each one of those four things. So he just gives us the summary in verse 42, then he describes each one of them in verses 43 through 47. Look at verse 43 speaks of the apostles. That coincides with the apostles' teaching. Verse 44 and 45 speak of the fellowship that they enjoyed. They had all things in common. They were selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them. Verse 46 speaks of their worship. That is the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that's verse 46 through the beginning of verse 47. So the four things, we're going to summarize those four things really in three statements because the breaking of bread and the prayer are acts of worship and so we'll include them together. The first thing we see is that the early church was a learning church. A learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Doctrine was very important to the early believers. What the apostles taught, what the apostles preached, what the apostles wrote was very important. In fact, you may ask yourself, how is it that we received the Scriptures that we have today? How do we know that Matthew through Revelation are inspired? Do you know what the standard by which the New Testament books were judged in order to be included in the Bible were? Were they written by an apostle? 
The apostles were the standard. If something lined up with what the apostles taught, it was accepted as truth. It was accepted as right. It was accepted as proper and biblical. But if it did not line up with what the apostles taught, it was rejected by all the church, except for the heretical factions and the aberrant factions that followed false teachers. The apostles' doctrine is very, very important. And that's a stumbling block in today's modern church. We're told that doctrine is not important. We're told that in order to have true unity, we have to get rid of doctrine. We have to downplay doctrine. We have to not mention any theological subjects because doctrine is a very divisive thing. Whether it is your doctrine on predestination or election, whether it is your doctrine on the inspiration of the Scriptures, or whether it is your doctrine on tongues and other sign gifts, whatever it is, we're told, that might divide us as Christians, we are to downplay that. Push that off to the side. Not mention it. Not emphasize it. Certainly do not teach it. Does that sound like the early church to you? They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. Day after day, they studied, they learned, they read, they absorbed at the feet of the apostles. And what the apostles taught them was true. Ephesians 2.20 The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Our church rests on what it is that has been handed down to us by the apostles. Even 30 years after Acts chapter 2 happened, Peter in his book writes this, 2 Peter 3 verses 1 and 2, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter says, I'm stirring up your mind that you would remember two things. What the prophets said and what your apostles have said. Even 30 years later, the church still was called back to the doctrine of the apostles. And why do I emphasize this? Because you and I are being bombarded constantly with this bogus message that doctrine doesn't matter. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere in believing it. doesn't matter what your private theology is as long as you profess the name of Jesus and are one of His people. We should just have love and hugs for everybody. That's the prevailing mentality in the church. But it's not true. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. This was so important that Paul, before he died and was martyred, he wrote to young Timothy, a pastor in the church in Ephesus. And listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. That was Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.11, prescribe and teach these things. Chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching and to exhortation. Chapter 4, verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching and persevere in these things. And then he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season, be ready out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the Word. It was so important that Paul, in writing to Titus, 
who was another pastor on the island of Crete, said that an elder must be a man who holds fast the faithful word, which is accordance with the teaching, in order that he may instruct those who contradict and refute those who contradict. He must be a man who so holds to the apostles' teaching that he is able to instruct others in it and he is able to refute false doctrine. That's what you need in an elder. That's how important it is. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now you might ask, why the apostles? What makes the apostles so special? You catch what it is that makes them so special? Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. One might ask, why is it that they would take what it was that the apostles said as being inspired, truthful, right, biblical from God as His mouthpiece? Why would they devote themselves to their doctrine? Why not the apostles and the Jewish leaders? Why not the apostles and the rabbis? Why not the apostles and almost anybody else? Why is it that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching above all else? You know why it is? Because God authenticated those men as His mouthpiece, as the vehicles of revelation by giving them the ability to perform signs and wonders. You know what a sign is in the New Testament? It is something that points to something else, much like we use the sign today. You see a sign that says, campground, arrow this direction. The sign points to another reality. A miracle, a sign that they had the ability to perform did the same thing. It pointed to something. It pointed to biblical truth. And it pointed to these men as being the vehicles of divine revelation. How do we know that Peter spoke from God? Because he did the same miracles that Jesus did. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He performed many signs and wonders. And the people were able to look at Peter and say, he's a spokesman for God because nobody can do what he does unless God is with him. God authenticated the vehicle of revelation by giving them the ability to perform signs. Now, did everybody in the New Testament period perform signs? Did everybody do that? Did everybody have the ability to perform miracles? All the pastors? All the Christians? Everybody who threw up a tent and decided to have a revival, did they all have the ability to perform signs and wonders? No, they didn't. In fact, as you go through the book of Acts, you know what you find? Luke, time and time and time again, does something. He draws us back to the reality that when signs and wonders were taking place, it was taking place through an apostle or somebody who was closely associated with an apostle like Philip. It's through an apostle. What is Luke saying here in verse 43? Signs and wonders were taking place through the hands of who? All the Christians? All the 3,000 that believed? The 120 who were in the upper room? Who? The apostles. Over in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, Luke says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Speaking of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14, Luke says that they spent a lot of time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And that's referring to Paul and Barnabas. Acts chapter 15. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's not all Christians who had that ability. It's a sign gift. It points to something. It was given to the apostles as an authentication. They spoke for God. And so the people were in awe and wonder. And what did they do? 
they continually devoted themselves to the teaching of those 12 men because those 12 men spoke for God. Another way of saying it is they were obedient to the Word as God revealed it. They obeyed it. That's the learning church. They were a learning church. Second thing we notice as we look at the second thing that they were committed to, the fellowship, they were a loving church. They were a loving church. Notice verse 42 says they were devoted to fellowship. You look down at verse 44. All those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They were a very loving church. Now, fellowship is not just a potluck. Fellowship is not standing around after church service visiting. It is those things, but it's not just those things. Fellowship is a word that is used to describe two things. First, what we share in. It's used to describe what we share in. We, by God's precious promises, are partakers together. First Peter, Second uh, Peter 1, verse 4. We are partakers together, same word for fellowship, of the divine nature. You and I have fellowship with one another because you and I have fellowship with Christ. I don't have true Christian fellowship with an individual who's not in a relationship with God through His Son. We can't have fellowship together. We can talk. I can be nice to them. I can do things for them. But we can't have that meeting of the Spirit that must be there for true Christian fellowship because they don't know Christ. Fellowship describes what we share in. All of us share in our communion and our fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And fellowship also describes what it is that we share out. Describes what we share in, but it also describes what we share out with one another. And that's the point that Luke emphasizes when he says in verse 44 that they were together and they had all things in common. Verse 45, they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what Luke is saying here. And I don't want you to misunderstand what was going on here. Because some people, as you can well imagine, have pictured the early church as a little socialist, communist commune where everybody came together and they sold their possessions, nobody owned anything, and they pooled their money and they all lived together in these little hermit cloisters. And they go right here and it says they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and sharing them with all. That is, I even had one Bible school student when I was in Bible school tell me, that is biblical socialism. The only place that socialism has ever worked, Acts chapter 2, with Christians who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who sold all of their possessions and, and pooled them together. Now, is that what was going on? Is that what was going on? Is this biblical socialism? Were they living in communes? I want you to notice something. I'm going to say no. But before you rush out after the service and sell all of your possessions and join a commune, I want you to notice a few things. First of all, notice that it says they were day by day in the temple, worshiping and breaking bread where? From house to house. Some of them obviously owned homes, right? They weren't selling their homes. They owned homes. They were breaking bread and they enjoying fellowship from house to house. The Bible's not against private property, owning private property. The Bible is against thinking that when I have private property, that it's mine. And that the Lord doesn't own it. That's what the Scripture are against. Peter's not describing a commune because notice that they were breaking bread from house to house. And you'll also notice in the context that it says it was as everyone had need. It was according to need. 
And that's the way that biblical giving always is. Peter, Luke is just describing this generous spirit that the early church had. Amongst this fellowship of people, if somebody had a need, God would raise up another individual who would even go to the point of selling something that he had in order to meet the need. They may not have had any money on hand. Well, how can I generate money for my brother to help him through this difficult time? What do they do? They'll sell some possessions. I don't need to have four cars. I'll sell one. And I'll take that money and I'll use it to meet a need. Or I've got a bunch of extra clothing. I'll have a garage sale and I'll take that money and use it to meet some need. That's just the generous outflow of the Spirit of God in their generosity and their liberal giving. Notice that they had houses. Notice that it was according to need. And two other things you should notice from the whole context of the New Testament. First, there's no other church that it says did this. You don't see the church in Corinth doing this. Thessalonica, Colos. The churches in Galatia, you don't see any of them ever instructed to do this or ever doing this. And the other thing is, you don't even see it happening in the book of Acts beyond the early, very earliest years of the Christian church. One commentator I read said that the early Christians so believed that the Lord was coming back soon that they started selling off their possessions. And once they realized that the Lord wasn't coming back that soon, they stopped the practice altogether. Now, I don't know if that's why they did this or not. I don't know if that's the understanding that they had. I doubt it. I think it's just the expression of a generous spirit. They were so caught up in their fervent love for one another as a loving church that they didn't hold anything back. They just had it. If, you, if I've got it and you need it, it's yours. Consider it yours. Use it. Borrow it. Take it. If you have a need and I have the ability to meet the need, then that's the overflow of God's grace. That's how it works. That's how it works in all the other churches. And that's what's going on here in this early church. It's not a communal thing. They were very very loving church, sharing with everybody as they had need. We notice they were a learning church. They were a loving church. And the third thing we notice is that they were a living church. And I use the term living because it describes their worship. The Spirit of God was there and they were alive in their worship. Notice that Luke says in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Day by day, they continued in two places. The temple, that's where they went for their public worship, and breaking bread from house to house. Let's deal with the subject of the temple, first of all. You and I were 2,000 years removed from Jerusalem, 2,000 years removed from the temple. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. We've never been to the temple. We have never worshipped in a temple. We've never had a temple in our backyard. So we may ask the question, why were these early Christians going to the temple? Didn't they know that Christ was the fulfillment of all the sacrifices? Didn't they know that He was the fulfillment of all of the feasts, all of the ceremony, all of the ritual, all of the priesthood, everything that was typified and foreshadowed in the temple and all of its procedure was all fulfilled in Christ? Didn't these early Christians know that? And so why do they seem like they're going back to their Judaism back to their Old Testament way of doing things in going to the temple. They should have had a clean break with the temple. No, it's all in Christ now. They should have drawn the line and walked away from that. What are they doing going back into the temple? You wonder that? Let me give you a couple suggestions. It's really not that difficult. First of all, Acts is a transitional book. It describes for us how the church went from being a Jewish church in Jerusalem to being a Jew and Gentile church in the four corners, every corner of the then known world. So it's a transitional thing. 
Second, I want you to understand that they probably weren't even thinking through these theological issues about Christ being the fulfillment of the sacrifices, and that just didn't occur to them. Look, and it's natural. If you're a Jew, and you're living in Jerusalem, and you've worshipped the Jewish God all your life in the temple, when you come to an understanding that Christ is the Messiah, you repented of your sins and trusted in Him, and you're going to the temple where you've always gone to worship, to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, where are you going to go to worship? You're just going to go to the temple. That's where you've always gone to worship that God. And so the Jews in Jerusalem up to 70 A.D. just did what was natural. It was a very natural public place for them to worship. And I guarantee you that it gave them opportunity to witness to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ too. Right? They're in the temple worshiping the Messiah, the Savior, who's fulfilled everything that they're going through on an outward basis. And so they just do what's very natural. They go to the temple, but they don't stop there. They're also in houses day by day breaking bread, and having their meals together. The early Christians had what was called an agape feast. They would come together for a meal together, and as part of their meal, they would also celebrate the communion service. That was just part of the day-by-day practice when they broke bread together, they had their meals together, and there was the breaking of bread, the communion service. Now, that would be awkward for you and I, wouldn't it? If you invited somebody over to your house and you sit down, you have meal a meal with this family and you're all there enjoying the fellowship and you get done with the meal and you clean up the table and say, now we're going to have communion. And you'd say, what? Well, we can't have communion. There's no elders present here. We can't have communion unless we have an instrument. We can't have communion unless we're serving it to a big group of people. That's not how the early church did it. The early church met day by day, breaking bread, enjoying their meals together, worshiping and celebrating communion. It wasn't just once a month like we do it. It was done in a very awkward way, a way that you and I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with. They would meet together and eat, and after they ate, they would break bread and have some juice and examine themselves, confess their sin to one another, pray for each other, and remember what the Lord had done there. They did this how often? Daily. Daily they did this. This was their worship practice daily. From house to house they met. And how often did they meet in the temple for public, corporate worship? Daily. Let me ask you a question. Do you get the feeling that these Christians were together a lot? You get that feeling? You get the feeling that they were together quite often? Daily? I know we've got a big schedule. Our schedules are just packed. I mean, we don't have to do what they did. Theirs was pretty lenient schedule, really. I mean, they milked the cows and gathered in all the produce for the day and baked their bread and stoked the oven and carried their water several hundred yards in order to prepare everything for the day and then schooled their children and did all of those activities. And they were really lax. They didn't have all of these modern conveniences that you and I have that suck up our time and drain us so that we have no time for corporate worship. Their schedule was just wide open. After they got through with their 24 hours of mandatory labor that it took them just to survive, they somehow managed to fit in worship into there as a priority. And you and I are too busy for that. We have 168 hours in our week, and we think we're spiritual if we give God one of them. We think we've achieved. We've made it this week. Let me ask you a question. If we were to have a worship service for this church every day, would you be there? Daily? If we were to have a home Bible study every day of the week, would you be there? I, You know what? I don't think the way we are, and I'm including myself, that we would feel very comfortable 
in the early church, would we? Not very comfortable at all. This goes against everything that you and I hold dear, and that's our time to ourselves. They met daily. Daily in the temple, daily house to house, daily at the apostles' feet, daily for teaching, daily for preaching, daily for communion, daily they met. That is the activities of the early church. Now I want you to notice a second thing. The attractiveness of the early church. Look at the end of verse 47. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke repeats a phrase here. Actually, he repeats a concept three times, but he repeats a specific phrase twice. Did you catch what the specific phrase that he repeats is? Day by day they were in the temple. And day by day what? The Lord was adding to their numbers. Is that a coincidence, do you think? Is that just coincidental or is Luke trying to tell us something? He's trying to tell us something. The church was growing and the church was increasing and the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day. Why? Because day by day, these people were together. The church was all these people had. That was their family. That was their life. That was their soul. That was the place where their spirit was. There was no place that the early Christians would rather be than amongst God's people. No place on earth. And that created such a dynamic environment, such a powerful witness, that they were getting together day by day, and the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day as people were being saved. I want you to notice two things in verse 47. First, it's the Lord who adds to the church. Luke emphasizes that again. It's not our job to cajole, to woo, to draw, to manipulate, to pry, or to otherwise force people into the kingdom or into the body of Christ. We can't do that. We don't do that. And so any attempts that we make at trying to push someone into the faith is sin. Because it's the Lord who adds to the numbers. It's His church and He's sovereign over it. And He adds and has the prerogative to allow people into His body as He sees fit. And as He wills, it's completely the Lord's work. But on the other hand, I want you to notice the second thing. What was the means that the Lord used to add to their means daily? Or to their numbers daily? The lifestyle of these Christians who met together and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching daily, to fellowship daily, to the breaking of bread daily, and to prayer daily. Because the early Christians devoted themselves to those four things, to being a learning, loving, and living church, God used that day-by-day witness to bring people day-by-day into the kingdom. And the Lord has been doing that every day for the last nearly 2,000 years. He still adds to the church. Today, before you go to sleep, somebody, somewhere, probably many people, will be added to His body. And He continues to do that because it's His work. And it's God who sovereignly adds to the church. But He uses the faithful, prioritized life of people to do that. There are four relationships that Luke gives us here, and we'll use this by way of summary. First of all, the early church was related to the Word in being submissive to it. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were related to the Word in obedience and submission and learning and centering everything about the Word of God. Second, they were related to each other in love. They were related to God in worship and they were related to the world in evangelism. 
And that, my friends, is a healthy, spirit-filled, biblical church. It has those four priorities. We're related to the Word in obedience. We need to be related to each other in love. We need to be related to God in worship and related to the world. Our relationship with the world needs to be marked with evangelism so that we're telling other people about the Lord. That's a biblical life. That's what the early church was like. That's what it was like to be in Jerusalem. Would you have wanted to be there? Would you have wanted to be in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost and have this kind of a lifestyle? I wonder if you would have. I'd felt a little uncomfortable. I felt a little out of place. But it's only because we have such a warped, man, and I think sometimes, friends, twisted understanding of what the church is. This country and the condition of the church is so far afield from what it was like in Acts chapter 2. And I'm not trying to hold them up as some ideal standard that you and I should model. I don't necessarily think it is all that. They had problems in the early church, and we're going to get into some of them here in just a couple of chapters. They had some issues that they had to deal with. But God has shown us what it is that a biblical church, and a spirit-filled church, and a spirit-filled Christian is, keeps his priorities in his life. A, devo- a devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, the Word of God, and to prayer. Those are our priorities as a church and as individuals. And that's the measure against which you and I need to measure ourselves and analyze ourselves. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for what Your Word tells us and what it reveals to us about what a a biblical, Spirit-filled church is. We do ask, God, that in light of all of this, that as we bring our hearts before You and our priorities before You, that You would correct us individually and corporately where we need to be corrected. And that Your Word and our commitment to worship in spirit and in truth would be the guiding principles and the guiding parameters around all of which we do, and that we would do it all for You. We love You. and Father, we want everything we do to be pleasing in Your sight because You have bought us with Your blood and we belong to You. And we want to serve You in spirit and in truth. We ask that You would give us the grace to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.